Hello and welcome to the IC Companies and Markets show. My name's Ian Smith. I'm the company's editor of the IC. Joining me today for the second AIM 100 special are Harriet Russell, our sector's editor. How are you doing, Harriet? Yeah, good, thanks, Ian. How are you? We'll be talking a little bit about the retail stocks on the alternative market, some of the biggest. Uh, And also Tom Dines, our new specialist writer, joining us from uh, Pensions Expert here at the EFT. How are you doing, Tom? Yeah, good, thanks, Ian. Welcome to the team. Thank you. And also over in the uh, podcast studio, we have our podcast editor, Alex Newman. How are you doing, Alex? I'm good. Hi, Ian. As I said earlier, it's the second part this week of our AIM 100 review. This week, we're looking at the top 50 stocks in that index. But first of all, let's talk about some of the news that we have in this week's magazine. And Tom, you wrote the lead news story this week, which is about the energy sector, a price cap, a uh, topic that keeps coming around, much feared by the uh, energy, energy suppliers for obvious reasons. What is the proposal here from the government in terms of what they're suggesting they might do? Uh, So the details on the proposal are still a bit thin on the ground. The rumours started to come out this weekend, um, firstly in the the Times and then followed up with an interview on ITV. Basically, what we know so far is it will reduce bills by about £100 for people on standard variable tariffs, which is uh, about 74% of people on British Gas, 91% of people on SSE. So it's potentially got a very big impact. Okay, so this is a topic that has come around again and again. Ed Miliband as Labour opposition leader in 2013 uh, proposed a freeze on energy prices ahead of the 2015 election um, yes. and was branded as importing socialism at the, at the time. Um, so it's fair to say that there was some surprise that this proposal came through, given that last year we had the Competition Markets Authority's final review of the energy market that stopped short of introducing or proposing a cap. That's right, although it is worth mentioning that some sort of action on charges was expected at some stage. The uh, Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy is expected to publish a green paper in the coming months, which was expected to at least touch on the idea of, of some sort of cap. So it's not quite out of the blue. That said, um, Damien Green, when being interviewed over the weekend, mentioned that the the price cap would be informed at least in some way by Ofgem, which supposedly would, would make it more influenced by the market. That's the the main discrepancy he drew between their price cap and Ed Miliband's horrible price freeze, which obviously was announced and then subsequently energy prices fell. So this is basically to avoid that happening. Some might see that as rhetoric. Um, uh, (laughs) So, no, couldn't possibly be. Um, And one reason perhaps to take that as rhetoric or all the same to the market is the share price reaction of some of the retail energy suppliers. So uh, who, which companies are potentially going to be hardest hit? Um, And what was the, uh, the reaction from the companies this week? Uh, Centrica down 5%, SSE down 4% on the day. They've both since recovered slightly. Um, I suppose the the big worry, analysts at RBC Capital Markets estimated that um, 2018 EPS for Centrica could be down 30% and for SSE it could be down 20%, which would put their dividends under pressure, put their dividend payout ratio about 100%. So... Um, Obviously, these are often held as income stocks, so that's that's a major cause for concern. Yeah, the earnings coverage on the dividend falling to that level, yeah. That's right, yeah. Um, Ian Conn, the chief exec of Centrica, said on Tuesday to the BBC that um, he basically suggested that the Conservative government doesn't believe in free markets. Obviously, he's going to say something like that, but uh, if you want uh, our editor, John Human's view on that, you can read his 
column this week. A typically strong view from John. I'll leave people to go and, and read that. Okay, elsewhere in the news section this week, Jimmy Choo is up for sale. Harriet, give us the skinny on this one. There's not many details, but what do we know and what's going on in the wider sector? Yeah, it, it's an interesting time. There's an awful lot of M&A going on in the luxury sector and an awful lot of it is not reported on in this country because a lot of it is happening overseas. In the US, you've got Coach, who we did follow at one time. Um, we don't anymore, but they, uh, they've they been very acquisitive, mainly because they're on a huge recovery trajectory, actually. And last year, they tried very hard to buy Burberry, which obviously is London listed, didn't work. So they're now setting their sights on some more brands over there. And similarly, LVMH, which is a current bite of ours, they, they this week announced that they were going to buy the remaining stake in Christian Dior, the Parisian um, couture house, uh, for a quite a sizable sum, ten billion. That's a really important deal in that industry. Yeah, very, very important. Dior is a massive, massive name, and it's had an absolutely stonking year. The shares valuation, which was two hundred and thirty euros, that LVMH has agreed to pay. The analysts initially called that a fair valuation, but actually the shares have risen well beyond that offer price now. So we'll keep an eye on that one. But is the- that any expectation of a higher? Uh, any further offer? Or? Yeah, well, I think there's always the potential, I think, for these deals to fall through when the share price has a reaction above and beyond the offer price. They were trading slightly below that level, hence why analysts were saying that's a fair price. They already own a, a pretty sizable chunk. But if you're your... a shareholder now and you've seen how the share price performed since, you might be... Yeah, you yeah. might be thinking, mm, are these shares actually worth a lot more than what LVMH is agreeing to pay? But then you've got to balance it always. LVMH is owned by the Arnaud family. They're a very, very wealthy family. That This is their family business is, is luxury brands. So for them to take full control kind of makes sense. It's just going to be about finding the right price maybe to pay. But as I said, we're keeping an eye on that one. The main crux of this story actually comes back to Jimmy Choo because it'll be interesting to see if any of these companies sort of have buyer's remorse. Jimmy Choo came out early this week to say that it was up for sale. It's owned by a German investment group, really, is its majority shareholder. And they are the ones who have said, we are seeking a buyer. They themselves are really turning away from luxury retail, hence the sale. Um, from high heels to uh, coffee. <laughs> coffee, indeed. They bought Carrick last year, um, mm. which is the maker of coffee machines. Um, they're very, very popular in the US. And they, they paid quite a sizable sum for that. So they're obviously trying to consolidate their position in that market a lot more and offering Jimmy Choo in the process. That being said, they did say we have no offers on the table at the moment. So we did it's try an interesting and- strategy, isn't it? Putting yourself up for the sale without any interest. We've seen it before uh, work and not work. Uh, do, but do, is what you're saying that you think there are businesses out there that might want Jimmy Choo as part of their portfolio? Yes and no. This is why we really did try and reach out to the company and some of the analysts. Unfortunately, everyone's restricted in light of the potential sales. So we didn't get a huge um, amount of sort of insider knowledge on this one. But for me, it's it's an odd deal or an odd time to be trying to strike a deal. Yes, there's a lot of M&A going on in the sector. But a lot of these companies are trading very, very highly. The stock, I mean, is trading very, very highly. They're big dollar earners and they've been major beneficiaries of the currency environment since the referendum last year. So Jimmy Choo, for instance, trades on 24 times forward earnings. Anyone making an offer for that company is going to have to offer quite a significant premium. Now, maybe they won't have to offer a significant premium because JAB is looking to sell and maybe they'll accept any price. The interesting thing about Jimmy Choo is that while the stocks had an absolutely stellar 
sort of six or seven months. The actual earnings growth there is kind of questionable. The top line growth in particular has been coming off. It's still in positive territory, but it's been slowing over the last three years. We actually had Jimmy Choo on a sell um, for most of 2015 and a bit into 2016. And overall, I would say that my view is still somewhat bearish. It's it's not the best luxury retail. So the current there. market valuation you see as fairly punchy yeah. relative to profitability and thus for any buyer to come in at a significant premium they they would be paying you know almost nosebleed valuation yeah i think they'd be paying over the odds so my suspicion is gab wants a quick sale the premiums toppy so shareholders are looking at a fairly thin offer i mm. think okay well we'll watch that and we'll discuss it when we know just speaking of luxury retail the only uh, or the most relevant stocks this discussion in the aim 100 this week is at number 17 mold now, it's had its own problems in recent years in terms of the pricing strategy for its yeah. handbags. Where do we stand now on Mulberry? Where do you think the business stands in relation to some of the you know, market environment that you've just uh, referred to? I think Mulberry is a very interesting stock. The uh, The valuation on those shares is extremely prohibitive, always has been, at least since I've covered it. And uh, it's difficult, therefore, to find the appropriate entry point. But for me, they had a real sea change. They, uh, they brought Johnny Coco into the business, who is the new creative director there. And his direction, so far at least, seems to be really well balanced, in my opinion, between taking what was so good about Mulberry in its heyday, this real sort of British heritage brand with traditional designs that had sort of mass appeal, but also making it more modern and correcting the pricing strategy, which is really what dug itself a grave in in the last few years or so. So for me, there's there's renewed hope there. How important is it that Mulberry Asia is a success? Uh, very, I yeah. think. Um, Burberry has proved this. It's um, Although a lot of analysts like to sort of debate the success of Burberry in Asia and its over-reliance somewhat on Asian customers, and this can be said of all luxury retailers to some extent, Mulberry hasn't really pushed Asia in the same way that some of the bigger companies have. So for me, it's a little bit more of a growth market for them. A lot of the other retailers are really well saturated there. Um, and for me, Mulberry is doing this in a smart way. It's doing it effectively through a joint venture for want of a better friend. Um, so it's got limited sort of responsibility or exposure or risk and they still have this I mean British heritage plays fantastically well in Asia we all know that it's just about getting the balance right out there so if they can do that all to the good and just speaking of British heritage um, in terms of domestic British or British heritage selling to domestic uh, customers you've also written the sector focus which is obviously the sector a section of the magazine that you edit but you've written it this week looking at two or principally two uh, let's say three, but two aim-listed um, hobbyist retailers yeah. um, that have had um, a rougher time of the past couple of years. Uh, Hornby, the uh, model train maker, um, and stamp specialist Stanley Gibbons. What was your kind of overall take about the hobbyist retail sector? Basically that it's dying. That sounds harsh, but um, this sector focus to me recalled a feature which we did a couple of years ago now, which was all about millennial taste really and about how that was actually shaping companies for the future not just in terms of convenience and demand but also just in terms of product what what people are interested in and it seems from the fortunes of hobby retailers like Hornby and, and Stanley Gibbons that that people aren't as interested in in what they have to sell that might be quite a harsh view I think these companies could be 
still relatively successful. They're just not designed to be public companies. Yeah, and they're both companies that in the past couple of years have had to return to the market to raise money um, and have struggled. Interestingly, Hornby moved from the main market to AIM in June 2015 at the same time as doing a placing. Uh, I thought I was just looking at that before in terms of we're getting into on this podcast a couple of the reasons why people join AIM. Mm. And one of the reasons they gave explicitly was that on AIM, they can raise further money without having to issue a prospectus. Now, that for me, from an investor's perspective, that then puts a, a risk there. You know, the fact that Hornby sees AIM as a nice way to maintain its corporate growth model. There are other reasons that are slightly more mundane, like it's cheaper. Mm. Uh, but what's your take? Is Should it be a bit of a red flag if a company at that point in its life says, I'm going to move to the alternative market? Yeah, I mean, AIM's always had a bit of a gangland reputation. Let's 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 not ignore that. Um, an awful lot of companies are on there in order to have access to raise capital in a much more easy way. I mean, Alex will know from from covering his resources sector that that's an extremely easy way of ra- raising money for companies that are you know sort of capital heavy. They they need a lot of money and they need it to flow continuously. What's interesting about resources is that you can kind of understand that from an exploration point of view, going into all of these different assets, and there's an awful lot of risk attached. For someone like Hornby, you know, it's it's sales costs and profit. It's not a difficult business model. Is and that why maybe it's important to look at the time in the life of the company that they're doing it? Obviously, AIM is a great proving ground that we write about quite regularly in terms yeah. of that lower regulation model can help companies, but also a company that's more mature moving there. Is that yeah ever a warning sign? Yeah, I mean, to be to be completely honest, I don't know that it would really matter if Hornby was main market or AIM listed. I don't think it should be listed, full stop. And certainly that's the case with Stanley Gibbons. I risk upsetting <laughs> many directors at these companies by saying this, but Stanley Gibbons is run by stamp enthusiasts. Um, they're often people who have come out of much bigger business positions. Um, Harry Wilson there is, is XBP, for example, but he absolutely loves stamp collecting. So suddenly he's he's involved with this business. And I'm sure that gives them a great kind of sort of passion for what they do. But and Stan- both companies, to be fair, have recovery strategies in place. Yes, and Stanley Gibbons has been a bit more active on that front, as I detail in the piece. But Stanley Gibbons, I mean, they, their revenues are awfully lumpy. They're a bit like these miners that go to auction and have to auction off precious gems um someone like gem feels kind of springs to mind and you know if they get a big sale that's great Mm. that kind of covers them for a couple of months but then they go six months without a sale a big enough sale a material sale and it and it starts to look shaky all over again i'd invite anyone to read further uh, harriet's piece because you uh, move on to talking about Games Workshop, an example mm. of a hobbyist retailer that is doing well and is growing in important markets. Yeah. So do go and have a look at that. Uh, another company that joined AIM this week and received a lot of attention was Eddie Stobart Logistics, the truckers. Alex, this is the company that you have looked at. Obviously, one of their owners or the company that owned a big stake in Eddie Stobart Logistics is Stobart Group um, that we've previously had on the podcast and we write about. Um, tell us about this company. A lot of people will, ha- um, will have some knowledge. They will have seen the trucks. Um, but what are its reasons for coming to market right now? So it was, like you said, it was owned by Stobart Group, which had uh, previously was the, the, the total owner of, of Eddie Stobart Logistics. Prior to this um, this flotation, it owned forty nine percent, and there was a company asset manager called D Bay, which which owned the majority. I mean, I think D Bay, as a controlling shareholder, thought you know they only had a four year horizon for ownership, so it was probably going to going to happen eventually. It's been a, a slightly expansive three years since this this sale was initially made to D Bay, 
they've got ta- they've taken on some debt. So that's that's a typical cycle we sometimes see with with companies which have been privatized and then may come back to the market. So. It's, so the principal reason for them coming to market is to reduce the balance sheet leverage, but they've also got growth plans as well. Exactly, yeah. Now they, they want to become an income stock, which is another um, another theme of for companies which may be reaching a, a more mature uh, stage in their in their life. Not that Eddie Stobart Logistics is is not mature because it's a very very recognised brand, and this is a big flotation. If you know we've been writing the AIM one hundred in a couple of months' time, this probably would have made it into the top fifty. So it came to market uh, market with a capitalisation of of just over five hundred fifty million. Its net debt is about. Uh, two times the cash profits, trailing cash profits figure, and which isn't a ridiculous level for a yeah, company. It's not that it's not that indebted, and 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 one of the the targets of management over this year is to bring that down to about one point six times. The other big ambition, and which is this, has attracted the interest of of Neil Woodford, who many of our our listeners and readers will uh, be aware of as. as big name fund manager he's bought into it i think this is probably timed with the launch of his income focus fund management at eddie stobart logistics has said they are committed to quite an aggressive aggressive dividend policy so they're, they're aiming for an earnings payout ratio of about 55 percent, which raises a couple of questions but um you know for dividend seekers out there in the near term that's uh, quite a bold and enticing promise and it's definitely something worth looking at very important to look at when a company comes to when a company comes to market is who's backing the IPO. And this is an occasion where you have some pretty big names that are getting on board. Obviously, it's not a guarantee of success, but, of course, the, yeah. but it's very much geared as an income play, which we know a lot of our readers are interested in. What do you think of the valuation that's been put on the stock um, by the IPO price? Well, at listing, it's, it, it has, uh, based on the trailing uh, profits for the last year, it has a, a valuation of enterprise value to, to EBITDA or earnings before interest tax depreciation and, and Amortization of about 14 times, which is pretty much the average for the sector. If you include some of the really, really big names in European logistics, some people have, will probably think that's a little bit toppy. I, I would say, you know, this is a very strong brand. Its its operating model also is probably the differentiator for it. So, unlike some other logistics peers, Eddie Stobart owns all its 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 fleet. So, the argument there is that it's able to carry out its um, its shipments or its uh, journeys for multiple clients at the same time so you you take Ian your your goods if I'm if I'm a haulage company I'll take your goods to A and bring Tom's back back home in the same journey so uh, so that's that's one differentiator I mean as to the the recommendation we've we've given it I'll leave that for people to to, to read the story um, and without giving everything away here yeah exactly but it's been a good deal for Stobart Group yeah, it, I mean that's that's another uh, thing to take away from this. And Sto- Starbot, Stobart Group will still hold on to about twelve point five percent of of Eddie Stobart Logistics. That val- the valuation of that stake exceeds the for- the value of the forty nine percent stake that they held on their balance sheet. Um, I think that was about fifty five million pounds as of their last financial results. And they've booked about one hundred thirty million from this sale. They've been a, ver- a very smart manager of their assets. It's sometimes it's hard to see with with companies like Stobart Group who have quite sprawling uh, interests in a number yes, a number waste of sectors. Wool, biomass, civil yeah. engineering. They've got property investments and other investment uh, division. It turns out as well a lot of these these assets and properties they they had on their balance sheet for fairly derisory values as it turned out. So this is this is one in a series of 
pretty handy transactions they've done. So whatever you make of Eddie Stobart's, uh, you know, the logistics business probably is also worth looking at Stobart Group. And that was one of the reasons why we interviewed uh, management there. So we spoke with Chief Executive Andrew Tinkler and Executive Director Richard Butcher about the business a few weeks ago. And uh, you're going to hear a clip now from that interview. We have investments in Eddie Stobart. We own 49% of that business. The turnover in that business is growing year on year and it is really a good quality service business and it's looking to grow and develop every year. I think it's grown something like 14% a year since we did sell it back in 2013, 51%. So since 2012, we've disposed of over £170 million worth of property and we've used that to, to repay debt as well as to reinvest in the business. So what we're left with now on the infrastructure side is a number of assets, about 16 assets. So as it stands, we've got a, uh, those assets are currently valued at about £110 million, and we're looking to asset manage those over the course of the next sort of 12 to 18 months. In the current year, we have disposed of a number of properties, including a, a major site at Speak, where we realised uh, in total £37 million in cash. And we've made two other disposals uh, towards the back end of 2016, uh, totalling around £16 million. Um, There are a few more in the pipeline as these things come to maturity. So that's the, the cash flow that we're looking to support the dividend with in the shorter term, whilst the operating businesses become more established with their cash flow patterns. So whatever you make of the logistics business, it may be worth looking at Stobart Group um, as well as Eddie Stobart Logistics. But Stobart Group, as Alex said, has proved itself to be a very smart asset manager, uh, assets of lots of different varieties. All right, well, let's have a look at a few more of um, the AIM 100. Alex, just sticking with you, and one company that's going to drop off the AIM 100 this year is a long-term AIM favourite, Ithaca Energy, uh, which is being taken over by Delec Group. And this was all just happening as we were going to publication. I think these the uh, deadline for tendering your shares was actually extended in the process of us putting this feature together. But tell us a little bit more about the history of that um, and what that means for Ithaca. Uh, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, it's not a completely done deal, as someone corrected us the other week, saying, I mean, it's, it's pretty much there. Um, uh, but as you said, the, 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 the tender period has been extended slightly. So, so Ithaca Energy, um, many AIM investors will be aware they had this stellar field in the North Sea, which was just coming online when they received this bid from Delet Group. To some investors, probable disappointment that they didn't get to reap the full benefits from that field, which has basically just been entirely in development stage at huge capital costs and huge build-up of debt. And now it's being taken over at a price which uh, some have, uh, have cast dispersions over. We ended up it's sort of recommending that this is a fair enough price, given there is you know still considerable risk to operating in the North Sea. But there is there is another uh, North Sea operator in in this week's uh, AIM one to fifty, and that is uh, Ferro Petroleum. So Ithaca was at number twenty eight, but yeah, if we go up to or down to number forty eight, the Ferro is there. Yeah, indeed. And uh, like Ithaca, Ferro have also had uh, some interest from Delic, which took. A stake in the company at Christmas. Unlike Ithaca and and some of its peers of a similar size, thinking the likes of Enquest or Premier Royal, Pharaoh has been a, a very canny, someone to say overly conservative manager of its assets and its balance sheet throughout the oil price downturn. I mean, that's been pretty good for capital preservation and they have actually been quite a canny investor in building their asset base throughout 2016. And we interviewed Graeme Stewart a few weeks ago. Uh, in this, the clip you're about to hear, uh, we talked primarily about Ithaca Energy, what um, Mr. Stewart thought about that deal. 
um, and I also asked him about what he thought the the deal might mean for for shareholders in his company. I mean, were you surprised by by that deal, or could you see it coming? Well, I think it was probably flagged really um, some time ago when uh, when Delek made their investment in the company. And they made it clear that um, their intention was to grow in the North Sea. So that was no real surprise. Right. Delic as well. I mean, obviously, it's, it should be noted that they, they took a, a stake in Pharaoh at Christmas. Should investors assume then that you're the, you're the next target? Well, they have taken a stake in us, but there's a very significant difference in that stake. They, they acquired theirs in the market. In fact, they took out um, Dana Petroleum, a previously uh, long-term holder in us. Um, I think it all it really does is to demonstrate their belief in in us and in the sector and the North Sea, um, and I think you know they're a, a well financed company with um, with focus on growth. So we're looking forward to their their support going forward. Were Delic or, or anyone else to make a, an offer, would you want a, a larger premium applied to your share price? Or we- you're speculating that uh, were we to be bid for, I can assure you we would um, do everything we can in the event that we were bid for to ensure we had the very highest possible price paid for us. Right, let's jump to the very top of the table now. At number three, we have Boohoo. And at number one, we have ASOS. When people talk about AIM growth stories, these are the ones that they are referring to, Harriet. Now, interestingly, we've also had Boohoo's results, their full-year results following ASOS's results. Your analysis of Boohoo's results and what it means for the share price, what they mean for the share price, uh, is also in this week's issue. Mm -hmm. Perhaps we could then start with Boohoo. What's your take on how this company is growing? Yeah, I mean, it's talk about rising from the ashes. It's a relatively new float. People might remember when it came to market a couple of years ago. um, It floated late in the year, around November, and by January it had issued a profit warning. And the shares absolutely plummeted as a result, well below the IPO price. And people were very uh, scathing at the time. They said, this is typical, you know, these sort of internet-based companies, albeit retailers, promising the earth, and at the first hurdle they kind of fall. And And that was rising costs, higher than expected costs. Higher than expected costs. Yeah, absolutely. They were doing an awful lot of marketing at the time, really trying to drive itself as a viable competitor to the market leader, ASOS, which people, I'm sure, will be well aware of. What's interesting with Boohoo is, uh, since then, how they've shown stellar improvements in Mm. their turnover, which is very much everyone knows about this trend towards fast fashion. But they've also made interesting acquisitions of um, related companies, related in a couple of senses. Yeah. I mean, some of it has been sort of good timing. ASOS has been through a very high profile management change, which caused the shares to have a little bit of a stutter. And ASOS has also been investing in price, which has caused their margins to contract. And at the when they first started doing that, the market was a little bit unsure. Now that's almost like a commonplace strategy between the two companies. So there's a lot more trust on that side of things. So Boohoo's taken advantage, I think, of a time when people were kind of taking a step back from ASOS and thinking, well, where, where's it going under under the new chief executive? That being said, they've, as you mentioned, they've made some really good sort of moves of their own and they made two big acquisitions towards the end of last year, one of which has just completed actually Nasty Gal in the US. I tried to say that with an American accent, which is actually appalling. So, <laughs> But uh, anyone watching the uh, the Netflix series Girl Boss, uh, which just went live a couple of days ago, that is all about uh, the founder of that company, Nasty Gal, Sophia Amoroso, who started the business in her bedroom. 
story for another time. But that's actually quite relevant because both Nasty Gal, uh, if I get the pronunciation right myself, and and Pretty Little Thing yeah. um, are very young businesses. Pretty Little Thing, actually, they're founded. It's family, and, yeah, it's family connected business. So, But yeah. they are good examples of how you can start these businesses entirely quickly and then i'd imagine the synergies are quite strong between the businesses because they're doing very similar things i'd imagine in terms of an acquisition it's quite easy to integrate a pretty Mm -hmm. little thing into a boohoo or am i wrong in that no you're absolutely right it was interesting i spoke to boohoo yesterday obviously for all the results and the chief financial officer was talking to me a little bit more actually about nasty gal than about pretty little thing pretty little thing is as we've said it was a family connected business so we can expect the model to be working exactly the same way they just wanted to buy in that growth i mean i think revenues there alone grew 264 percent in the time that it was accounted for as part of boohoo and it's massive massive growth nasty gal unfortunately entered administration It, it filed for bankruptcy so you haven't got really sort of growth numbers there to to talk about so we were talking much more about why that deal was done why would you want to buy a distressed asset if you yourself are a fast growth company what makes you so sure that you can do a JD Sports for instance and turn a business around or a booker and he had some very interesting things to say he basically said we bought it for the customer base. We bought it for that customer loyalty, those people who have been shopping on that site for years. Once they see it up and running again, albeit somewhat we sort of you know managed from somewhere else, they'll flock. And that's why they bought it. What comes with that uh, incredibly fast growth is a very high earnings, a forward earnings ratio. Yeah. Uh, you're currently neutral on Boohoo. And that's a position you've moved to with ASOS. Yeah, I'm neutral on both. And it's a shame because we always say around these parts that a hold recommendation doesn't always sort of adequately within that one word sort of express your true feelings about a stock and for a long time I was a bit more bullish on ASOS just as the market leader Uh, we hadn't had a huge amount of time to really get to trust Boohoo again but they've had four earnings upgrades this year and all that time they've actually been trading cheaply against ASOS but the market wasn't so sure the good the the thing about these two businesses as well over the last 12 months since the referendum as well is that they all generate an awful lot of revenue overseas Mm. they've been two massive beneficiaries of, of the current situation they're naturally hedged against sort of the margin pressure that a lot of other retailers have come under as a result but that upgrades point is very important Mm. when you look at a lot of businesses on aim fever tree is the fastest growing business on aim that's shown absolutely stellar uh, growth Um, and actually is in the uh, the ft's 1000 fastest growing european companies quoted and unquoted which is a series they put out uh, earlier this year it can be very prohibitive to get into the stocks on any kind of valuation argument. But actually, if they're in an upgrade cycle, you can still see um, share price growth and readers definitely that have got into those stocks have enjoyed that. Yeah, we really contemplated last year when I had ASOS on a speculative buy and it was doing very well, uh, the share price, I mean. We really contemplated putting out a proper sort of tip of the week, but we, we didn't in the end. We got a bit of cold feet just because there was very little way to really break down that valuation into anything other than a momentum play. Um, and I would say that all three of them, Fevertree included, are all quite good momentum plays. I mean, Fevertree we might talk about in a little bit more detail later, but um, but I would certainly say the momentum is there for Boohoo. If they can have as good a first quarter as they had final quarter in all of last year, I, I don't see that share price dropping off anytime soon, but you've got to be willing to pay 65 times forward earnings for the shares. And the things we're looking at at ASOS are things like the amount of price investment, to use your term, mm. cost, uh, price cutting, to use kind of layman terms. Yeah. 
and also some of the working conditions. They've had bad headlines surrounding working conditions at their Barnsley warehouse. Yeah. There's definitely a political will to clamp down on the um, the online retailers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uh, the Chancellor in his budget speech, Philip Hammond, said that um, bricks and mortar retailers have really suffered from the way that our current taxation system set up. Mm-hmm. And obviously there is focus also on the working conditions for the people in these factories allowing these incredibly cheap clothes to be uh, sold. So there is a risk there. There's a political risk, is that fair to say? Absolutely. I think this was one of actually the biggest deciding factors in why I moved ASOS off the speculative buy to a hold when we did the results a few weeks ago. Um, An awful lot of that was to do with the political risk. Um, If a company of that kind of power and branding can sort of come under that sort of pressure it sort of means that no one's infallible so when you've got a more sort of junior and immature company like boohoo potentially going to come up against similar things and that's not to accuse anyone of anything they haven't really found similar examples at boohoo yet but if if they did there are other companies that are more vulnerable to that sort of pr march i mean we've seen it with sports direct right it's... otherwise buy on bad news is the other side of the argument. <laughs> well there's always buy on bad news but calling the bottom is not something that mm. we make a habit of around here what's the worst that can happen it can go bust and you can lose all your money so okay i think we've got time for one more of the m100 as i say there's 50 in there so do pick up the magazine tom let's come to one that you've written johnson service group now that is a company perhaps less glamorous than asos but it's been undergoing a fair amount of well it's had a corporate uh, shift in its strategy what's going on there yeah, so the shares are up about a quarter since uh, since we tipped them last April. And basically the big thing that's changed is they had a dry cleaning division that had really been suffering. So they've dumped it, sold it in January uh, for $8.25 million. And they've also made some acquisitions. There's Zip Textiles, Chester Laundry Limited and Port Grade. Uh, they all bought all those for a total of $56 million. And since then, it's been pretty much all good news. 45% growth in pre-tax profit and 36% uh, growth in revenues uh, at, the, at the most recent results. These acquisitions have have had a bit of a negative impact on the, the balance sheet. Net debts up from seventy one to ninety eight million. But it's quite a cash generative business. I mean, it's textile services is its main business line now. That's what that's absolutely yeah. right. That's that's the focus. And as you say, it's cash generative. They raised twenty eight point seven million in, in April in a uh, through equity, and have agreed a revolving credit facility for 120 million so it's not a cause for concern it's just the net debt has gone up yeah as a, as a result of the acquisitions yeah that's a really interesting one uh, we've given it a longer analysis in this week's issue and actually with a number of the stocks we've taken a deeper dive into them than we did last time uh, around Watkin Jones uh, is another one in that bracket Okay, uh, I think that's about all we have time for. So thanks everyone for joining me. Uh, There's just time to give a shout out to a couple of the other podcasts that we have uh, published this week. So we had an excellent analysis of US drugs pricing and how US drugs pricing is impacting. And that entire debate led by President Trump is impacting on UK pharmaceuticals, massive for them. And we've really dug into that um, in a podcast that you'll be able to see lower down in the feed. And we've also had a boardroom talk with the events company UBM. I asked uh, the CEO of UBM, Tim Cobbold, uh, about the company's growth strategy um, and tried to scrutinise the uh, the valuation, fairly high valuation that's been put on the company and uh, where it's growing, where it's not. Uh, so plenty of good podcast material, but do pick up the magazine, AIM 100 Part 2, £4.90 in all good news agents, and we'll see you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 